The University of Florida College of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The University of Florida College of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. Welcome to UF Health Med EdCast with UF Health Shands Hospital. I'm Melanie Cole, and I invite you to listen as we explore IgA glomerulonephritis, a review and update. Joining me is Dr. Y. Lang Lau. She's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Hypertension and Nephrology at UF Health Shands Hospital. Dr. Lau, it's a pleasure to have you join us today. Tell us a little bit about IgA glomerulonephritis and IgA nephropathy. Tell us a little bit about what those are, the prevalence. Give us a little background. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. IgA glomerulonephritis is really one of my favorite diseases. So in terms of prevalence, globally, IgA glomerulonephritis is probably the most common form of glomerulonephritis. By incidence, it has its highest incidence in the Asian countries, especially Southeastern Asia. And in fact, in Japan, they screen for it in their elementary school children. It's how common that is. But as we go west on the globe in Europe, the incidence decreases. And then actually, as you go further west into the African continent, that's where there's the lowest incidence of IgA glomerulonephritis. And I would say the United States, I mean, obviously, we're a melting pot. We have people from all over the, the, the place. But again, looking at the ethnicity, I would say in general, low incidence in African Americans, highest incidence in Asians, and sort of medium incidence in the people of European ancestry. IgA glomerulonephritis is really thought to be a deposition of an aberrant form of the IgA immunoglobulin that is galactose deficient. And predominantly, this galactose deficient form is produced by the mucosal immune access, and it makes its way into the systemic circulation, and it gets deposited in the kidney, predominantly in, of the glomeruli. And that's where it causes inflammation, and that's how it causes this clinical phenotype that we know of as microscopic hematuria, sometimes macroscopic hematuria as well, proteinuria, and sometimes accompanied by renal dysfunction, uh, meaning elevated creatinine. Dr. Lau, if IgA glomerulonephritis doesn't usually cause symptoms in early stages and can go unnoticed for years, what red flags would you like other providers to keep in mind if their patients present with some of these? You mentioned earlier microscopic hematuria, will you please let other providers know what you'd like them to be on the lookout for? So from a subjective standpoint, when you're just talking to the patient and getting the HPI, what you want to hear is whether or not they've ever experienced gross hematuria. Okay, so that's frank blood that they see in the toilet. Okay, that's a big red flag that they may have this disorder. And I will say, especially around the times of infection, like if they can recall, oh, yeah, you know, one time I had this bad strep throat, or I had this bad ear infection, and then a day or two later, I peed out blood. And it could be self-resolved, meaning it may just happen for a day, and then the gross hematuria disappears. But nonetheless, that is a big red flag that they may have this condition. But really, short of gross hematuria, I mean, there are 
are some rare instances where patients can present with edema, meaning anasarca, fluid retention, swelling in their feet and ankles, and they may tell you about that. Ask them about skin manifestations because IgA can be a systemic vasculitis. In addition to being a renal-limited disease, it can be a systemic disease. So people can have these weird palpable purpura, these little red dots, especially in the lower extremities. But yeah, those are the main things that we ask subjectively in terms of what they tell you, what you might find objectively on exam. And then, of course, you know, in terms of diagnostics, the urine analysis is imperative, right? I mean, anybody can pee into a cup and all you need to do is do a dipstick on it and that can tell you a lot. If it turns positive for a hematuria or proteinuria, then for sure you've got a big flag right there. So, doctor, as we're talking a little bit about the histology and the pathological scoring of IgA, glomerulonephritis, tell us about the glomerular grading system and how it's useful to predict the natural course of the disease. So they've come up with what they call the Oxford classification to describe the his, the histology of the disease. And this came out, I believe, in 2016. And it contains a few elements. It's called the MESS score system. So M in the word MESS stands for the mesangial score, which gives us an idea of how many glomeruli exhibit the mesangial proliferation that we so classically see in IgA. The E is the score for endocapillary hypercellularity. And this in general gives us an idea of how angry this process is, how proliferative this process is. The S is the segmental glomerular sclerosis score. uh, And that tells us how many of the gloms or or the filters have been scarred by this process. The T is for tubular atrophy. And that tells us what percentage of the space in between the glomeruli are scarred. Because, you know, what starts out in the glomeruli, this inflammation, then extends out of the glomeruli into the tubular interstitium. And that's where the the T-score takes into account of. And then the latest addition to the MESS score system is the C, which is just letter C. So in total, it's actually M-E-S-T-C. So the C stands for how many cellular or fibrocellular crescents are seen on the light microscopy. Now, crescents really are the most angry manifestation that you can see in terms of glomerular inflammation because crescents basically represent a blowout of the glomerular basement membrane where the inflammation has basically blown through the GBM and then extends onto the urinary space in Bowman's capsule. So again, that it's really the most exuberant inflammatory manifestation of glomerular nephritis, of any kind of glomerular nephritis, whether you're talking about Anca disease or lupus or, or any kind of GN. When you see crescents, you have a really angry glomerular nephritis. So let's talk about some of the latest treatment options. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, what's exciting, and what you feel other providers would like to know. So the one thing that's sad about IgA is that we don't have good established treatment for it. I mean, it's a disease that we've known about for five decades now. I believe in the beginning, it used to be called Berger's disease. Of course, now we have a better idea of the pathophysiology. But, you know, here we are in 2021, and we still don't quite have a handle on how to treat these patients. 
Certainly, the most long-standing, most in-treatment option is steroids, right? It's glucocorticoids. But, you know, we all know that glucocorticoids have such severe side effects. And the fact that the epidemiology of this disease is such that a lot of young people get affected, not too many 20, 30-something-year-old people are interested in being on high-dose steroids where they end up having acne and weight gain and stretch marks and, and all the rest. So we're really interested in exploring other treatment options. So what we've recently been involved in, it's called the Nefigard study, N-E-F-I-G-A-R-D, and that uses a, a drug called Nefacon. It's actually repurposed form of budesonide. It is a glucocorticoid, but it is formulated to release in the part of the small bowel called the terminal ileum. And that's where we think that a lot of the aberrant IgA is made. Remember how I said that what's deposited in the mesangium of the glomeruli, we think are IgA that is of mucosal immune access origin. So the nefacon is a formulated special release uh, glucocorticoid that really gets released in that part of the intestines where we think that this immunoglobulin is being produced. So as such, it's uh, thought to have a lot less side effects than just giving the traditional prednisone because of its targeted release and also because of its extensive first-pass hepatic metabolism. By the time it goes through the liver, only maybe about 10 to 15% of the drug then gets absorbed into the systemic circulation. So it's thought to be a lot more tolerable than taking the conventional high-dose steroid. The other thing that we're looking to be involved in is the role of complement inhibition. More and more, we're understanding that many different forms of glomerulonephritis, perhaps a very basic common pathway that precedes the glomerular inflammation and clinical disease is the activation of complement. And we know that in IgA, that occurs in the mesangium because we see remnants or fingerprints of complement degradation products as part of the histology when we do the immunofluorescence. So we are interested in exploring the use of complement blockade in the treatment of IgA. And there's a study that is using a lectin pathway inhibitor. It's sponsored by Omeris, and I believe they're recruiting for phase three. There's interest with LNP, which is a small oral molecule blocker of factor B for the alternative pathway that we're anxious to get phase two data on, and, and they are recruiting for phase three, and we might be a part of that. And then what we're also looking to become a part of is using sort of a non-immunosuppressant way of reducing proteinuria, which I think is attractive. It's using endothelin receptor antagonist. It's not a potocyte-targeted therapy, but it kind of attacks at many different renal cells, so whether it be mesangial cells, endothelial cells, potocytes, tubular interstitial cells. But the end product is that we, it works works to help decrease inflammation and to help decrease proteinuria. And so endothelin receptor antagonists, I think, are an attractive arm of treatment that one might look for. And, and what's nice about it is that it's not an immunosuppressant drug, and it can be used as add-on, perhaps, to other immunosuppressant drugs. So I think that's a very attractive arm to look at. Sparsentin is an endothelin receptor antagonist combined with an angiotensin receptor blocker. They will be closing their phase three 
re-enrollment. And so we're all very anxious to see what the Sparsenton data will look like for the IGA group, because I think that will be a good option. You know, of course, treatment always has to be individualized. You have to look at the patient. You have to look at their comorbidities. You've got to look at their BMI. And, and, and then you also have to discuss the side effect profile of every agent that we have. And then between the provider and the patient, you need to decide which agent has an acceptable profile, side effect profile, that makes it a positive risk-benefit ratio for that particular person. So one other thing that I just want to mention that how we talk about IgA as being a disease of deposition of aberrant aberrant IgA molecule in the glomeruli. So, you know, what seems a sensible possibility for treatment would be something that might affect the B cells that produce the IgA. Well, oddly enough, there was a study done in 2017 by Lafayette et al. that looked at using rituximab to treat uh, a group of patients with IgA. And surprisingly enough to everybody, it was a negative result. In other words, it did not improve proteinuria or creatinine in these patients. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about what could be the cause of the result, and some people claim that, well, the mean EGFR in the rituximab arm was 40 cc's per minute, so maybe by that time, the horse is out of the barn already, and there might have been too much scarring, so it may be just the stage in which we're catching these patients that the drug might have been ineffective. But there have been a few other theories that, because again, the aberrant IgA, we think that the culprit is of mucosal origin, maybe Maybe there's a difference between how we need to suppress these particular B cells compared to IgA B cells that are made in the bone marrow or other germinal centers. So maybe there's something special about the mucosal immunity. We know that there are genetic predispositions to who forms these barren IgA that somehow, again, was able to escape the rituximab effect. There's concern that maybe it's more the plasma cells that are involved in producing the aberrant IgA and, of course, rituximab amount does not hit at the plasma cells. So there's been a myriad of theories to explain, but for all intents and purposes, for now, we do not believe that rituximab is effective for renal-limited IgA glomerulonephritis. Wow, that was an excellent summary. Dr. Lau, so any final thoughts you'd like to leave other providers with when you feel it's important to refer any clinical trials you'd like them to ask you about? Just give us a little bit of your final thoughts and best advice. Final thoughts and best advice. I would say certainly for all the primary care providers, the people who do physicals, please do urine analyses because a lot of these patients do come in asymptomatic. And if we can catch them early, get the referrals early, get the biopsies done, make the diagnosis and put them on appropriate therapy, then hopefully we can save a lot of these young to middle-aged people from going to ESRD. I would say to our nephrology colleagues, please refer for patients to go on to clinical studies because steroids really are very difficult for patients to tolerate. They are certainly not the the answer for everybody. And I would really encourage them to look at the different centers and who's doing what study and make the referral so that we can catch them. Because even for clinical studies, we generally like to see them when their EGFR is above 30. So that unfortunately, if you catch them too late, then they may not even be eligible for for a study. So I think those would be my two main ending remarks. 
What a fascinating topic we discussed here today. Dr. Lau, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your incredible expertise. Thank you again. And to refer your patient to Dr. Lau or to listen to more podcasts from our experts, you can always visit ufhealth.org slash medmatters for more information. That concludes today's episode of UF Health Med EdCast with UF Health Shands Hospital. Please remember to download, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other UF Health Shands Hospital podcasts. I'm Melanie Cole.